You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's picturing himself on a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. It's Mr. Man. Jeff McLarge. Man, I hope that boat isn't moving. Otherwise, I'm going to be picturing myself with tangerine something else. I mean, picturing myself with my head over the side of the rail. Right, exactly. Chum in the water. There's no sharks to find me. All right, other than seasick, how are you? How have you been? Um, you know, I'm all right. I've been seasick in a long time, but I also haven't been on the water in a long time, and those two things, they, they go together. Uh, I'm good. I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing great, but I'm a little, like, I don't know what to do with myself right now because, you know when you were, like you have a goal and you finally accomplish your goal, you sure. kind of don't know what to do with yourself afterwards? Yes. So, um, I watched a movie when I was a kid with my mm-hmm. father. Now, my father died when I was 18, so I must right. have been about, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 when I saw this movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought the movie was fantastic. You know, it really kind of like hit me. I, like I immediately went to the TV guide to look it up to find out the name of this movie because I wanted to know because it was such a good movie. Right, right. And I forget about it, uh, you know, throughout my life. And, you know, whenever the internet became a thing, and because of some of the themes in the movie, too, I wanted to go back and watch it. Because the movie okay. dealt with a, uh, a guy that falls for this girl and she's very manipulative. Mm-hmm. You know, turns him against his friends and stuff like that. And, you know, as a teen, it was just kind of cool to watch. But as an adult, I'm like, oh, God, I've not only have I seen this happen, I've lived through it myself, too, you know? Right. Uh, so I wanted to watch this movie again with adult eyes. Now, since the internet has been a thing, I have been actively, at least on and off, you know, looking for this film. Right. Trying to find a movie when you don't remember the name and you don't know who's in it and all you can remember is a few plot points. Yeah, that's tough. That puts you in a tough spot. You know, and I look up on Google and I, you know, I start typing in the plot points and this, that, and the other. And then my friend John... Oh, God, if you ever meet my friend John, the guy knows everything about every movie ever made, except for the one I was looking for. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sometimes that person. Uh, He was like, you know, try putting in film noir, because it sounds like a noir-style film, into the search engine, and it didn't help. It honestly didn't help. Right. And then my godchild, Marilyn, she's an old, old movie buff. And I was like, hey, can you ask around in your little circles? You know, here's, I gave her a description of the movie. You know, ask around in your circles, see if you can find it. So a couple of weeks later, I'm talking with her on the phone. I was like, hey, did you find my movie? She's like, yes, I did, actually. I was like, oh, my God, what's it called? What's it called? She's like, oh, crap, I can't remember. I'll have to look up my chat to see. <laughs> And she couldn't remember. She couldn't find it, right? She's like, do you know who's in it? I was like, no, we've talked about this. I don't know who's in the movie. All I remember is that the title of the movie has something to do with time. Like, it's a length of time. Two minutes, two hours, 20 seconds, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. So then I kind of put all the pieces together, and I joined a Facebook group called Film Noir something, you know? And I was like, hey, here's the description. I described what I could remember of the plot points of the movie. Can anybody help me with the title of this? I immediately get flagged by the administrator because I didn't put spoiler alerts in the title. And I'm like, <laughs> For a film that was made like almost 100 years ago? Yeah, like 90. <laughs> yeah, it turns out to be 90 years ago, right? And I'm like, immediately apologizing. I'm like, I'm sorry, I just need to find this movie. I put, and I edited it and, you know, put spoiler alert, spoiler alert. But if all you know are the plot points and you don't know who's in it and you don't know the name... Like yeah, how am I supposed to find this? Right? <laughs> exactly. Hey, I'm looking for a movie. Full stop. <laughs> yeah. 
Who can help me? It's a movie and it's been on TV. So at any rate, in a half an hour, I had the name of the movie. And in 24 hours, it was in my mailbox. And I finally got to watch this movie again. Wow. What was it called? The name of the movie is called Two Seconds. Yeah. And it stars Edward G. Robinson. Oh. And let me tell you, the last four minutes of this movie, like, is a monologue of him, mm-hmm. of Edward G. Robertson, you know, like, talking to the judge in a courtroom. Yeah. Man, this movie was made 90 years ago, and it is such a amazing example of acting. Like, oh, my God, what, a, what an amazing scene. He was great in a bunch of, of early, well, I mean, I want to say early stuff, but, like, all of his stuff is great. Right. I haven't seen two seconds, but I've seen like Scarlet Street and I've seen The Stranger that he was in with um, Orson Welles. Actually, the movie Two Seconds, I looked up on the Wikipedia page and they credit Two Seconds as being one of the first film noir films. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Yep. So what year did the Two Seconds come out? 1932. So 90 years ago. It's 90 years ago. So that's that's right around. That's, I think that's pre Hayes Code. Yeah, it is pre Code. So that, like, is there anything in there that makes you like, oh, that's awfully modern? Uh, no, I mean, it's it's dark and violent, you know, because uh, his, spoiler alert, but, like, his friend ends up, you know, accidentally dying because of an argument over the girl, and he, he accidentally the movie, was he, Did he accidentally die because he, he, he accidentally stood in front of some bullets that happened to be pass, passing by no. from a nearby gun? No, that's how she dies. She, oh, yeah, she gets yeah, she gets shot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, spoiler alert! Yeah, hundred years ago in this movie. But uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm actually so excited about this. I'm gonna put a link in the description to that four minute monologue because I encourage everybody just to watch. Ooh. Amazing, amazing acting. Yeah. Before we get going with the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well received trivia question. Hey, uh, we talked about Casey and the Sunshine Band. It was either last week or the week before. We did. Uh, and our love for uh, for our good friend Casey. So it got me thinking, and I had to look it up myself. And that's this week's trivia question. Jeff, in KC and the Sunshine Band, what does KC stand for? Uh, what does KC stand for in KC and the Sunshine Band? Well, I, I guess we'll have to wait till the end of the show. Oh, you know this one, don't you? I'm pretty sure I do. Okay, very good. Do a little All dance. Right. Make a little love. Get down tonight. $50 bagel. <laughs> I'll talk about that at the end of the show, too. All right. So this is the week beginning June the 13th, and I believe it is your turn to start. It is, in fact, my turn to start. June the 13th, 1966, the Supreme Court rules in the Miranda versus Arizona court case. And it is determined, it rules that you have to be apprised of your rights to have an attorney present when you are questioned by the police. And that the police can't immediately start to question you without an attorney present, without you waiving those rights specifically. The doesn't sound like a super important thing, but keep in mind, uh, when you're being compelled to testify, there are some constitutional concerns based on the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution that come into play. And Miranda rights are an extraction of that Fifth Amendment to the Constitution where you can't be compelled to provide witness against yourself. So, important. It also provides approximately one story beat for every single police story ever filmed, shot, (laughs) written, and or described since 1966. Yeah. And every police procedural you've ever seen that's like, you have the right to remain silent. A common misconception is that if you are not read your Miranda rights, that the arrest is invalid. That is not the case, let me tell you. It does go to court sometimes. There are some cases where the charges have to be changed or the arrest has to... They don't get like a do-over, but it can prevent someone from being prosecuted if their rights were violated during the time of arrest. It's just, it's very rare that it happens. Right. What I'm talking about is whenever 19-year-old Bill got arrested for trespassing and... After, you know, the, the cops are, you know, they, they were just trying to scare me. But at one point I tried pulling the, well, you didn't read me my rights. So, and the cop was like, yeah, well, that's only kind of a thing if this is going to go to court, which it's not going to go to court. You're going to get a trespassing notice and you're not allowed to come back on this property. But if you're so inclined, I'd be more than happy to read you those rights. <laughs> I have them memorized. 
It's it's yep. good that he didn't take it to a step further and be like, well, you can go sit in the back of the car and we'll like play this out for real down at yeah. the station house, you know? <laughs> that conversation has some weight. Yes. Yeah. I, so, yeah, like, I was trying to be a dick, and he was, like, being a dick right back. Like, as a kid, I was like, he's an asshole. But, like, as an adult, I really appreciate it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, next up, June the 14th, 1976. Ah, a great day in American television history. The Gong Show premieres. <laughs> it's still funny. When I oh, go yeah. back and watch clips on YouTube. The gong show for our younger crowd was America's Got Talent Without Talent is what basically it was. You had three celebrity judges and acts would perform their little two-minute sketches or songs or what have you. And then the three judges would scale them on a scale from one to ten. And if they absolutely hated the act, they would bang a gong and then they would just get, you know, hooked off, you know, removed from the stage and they weren't allowed to continue. My dad used to refer to the gong show as the half an hour cocaine and scotch party that happened to be on television because the show was, again, it had no script. It was edited into something that had structure, but I don't think it had structure. I think they literally filmed all like 99 acts for the whole season over like two weeks sure, and then cut the show together. And it was really, really, really silly funny. But it was really magnetic and eminently watchable. Quite a few famous people got their start, or or appeared, I should say, on the Gong Show. Oingo Boingo got their start. Their, for one of their first television appearances was on the Gong Show. Uh, future worst song ever people, Green Jello, appeared on the Gong Show. Yeah. J.P. Morgan's boobs. Yeah, yep. <laughs> they appeared on the Gong Show a couple times. Paul Rubens better known as Pee Wee Herman, appeared on there a number of times. Yep. Didn't they rotate in like one celebrity judge every week? And it was, they had a regular cadre of judges. So it was like J.P. Morgan and Artie Johnson and the guy that played Klinger on MASH. Uh, yeah, Jamie Farr was on there quite a bit. Uh, J.P. Morgan, like I'm not even sure who she was. She was just on the show. Yeah, I don't think she literally ever did anything else. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. And what's great to watch is the evolution of it. Chuck Barris was the producer of the show, and he never really wanted to be the host. So you watch like the first season, and he's very conservative. He's out there in a tuxedo, and he's, you know, he's just talking, you know, normal and all that. And then you get to the end of the third or fourth season. I'm not sure how many seasons it lasted. I think it was four. But you get to the end, and he was off his ass on as you say coke and scotch but he would always wear like all these like different hats and he was just out of control that looked like it was a lot of fun to be a part of it does look like it was a lot of fun to be a part of and i think everybody who was part of the show ended up as an act in one way or the other to fill out the weird structure that the show had all right like gene gene the dancing dancing machine machine. yeah he was like a stage hand and he ended up on half a dozen times at least it was always an exciting three or four minutes when he would be on. Yep, that's when J.P. Morgan flashed her boobs is whenever he was doing the dance, yeah. Yep, same with, like, the Unknown Comic. I don't know what what he did after he... He made a movie after he did The Gong Show, and then... Yeah, Midnight Midnight Patrol or something like that. Yeah, Night Patrol. Patrol. Yep. Hey, J.P. Morgan was in that movie. (laughs) Oh, there we go. And so was Dice Clay. Yeah. Uh, uh. All right, what do you got for the 15th? On the 15th, June 15th of 2012, Nick Walenda tightropes across Niagara Falls and does not plummet to his death, like many of the Walendas that preceded him. Yeah. Yeah, they were like a a circus family, right? The flying Walendas. They used to be- uh, They didn't uh, fly for a long time. Yeah, they were trapeze artists, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, they flew pretty much vertically, and it was like at 32 feet per second, (laughs) typically, and they never stuck to landings. Yeah, he wanted to follow in his family's footsteps straight down. Straight yeah. down. <laughs> There's a funny thing. Like, I remember the, seeing the Wallendas on, like, Sunday sports TV when I was a kid. That's yep. where Daredevils would be. Evil Knievel was there. That's where Wallendas' father and grandfather and aunts and sisters and uncles and everybody else in that family was doing crazy stuff over between buildings in New York City or... Yeah, before they were being blotted up with paper towels, right? Right, yeah. Before it was the squeegeeing Wallendas at the bottom. But, like... <laughs> The, where did Daredevils go to get a big audience now? They have to do stuff solo and hope that it gets big, like virally. 
right. as opposed to doing it live in front of like X number of thousands of people where the potential payoff is like, well, he won't do that again. Um, right, exactly. Unless your name's Johnny Knoxville, right? They're not exactly going to make a movie about it. Right, and, and like he doesn't do it live. He's not... You're not watching like the wild world of sports, waiting for Johnny Knoxville to come out and have a, a bull stomp on his testicles. It just no. doesn't. That doesn't. That's not a thing. It's right. recorded, and then you realize later that he lived. <laughs> so it's really strange to think that we would be so excited by weird daredevil entertainment culture, and it lasted at least as long as to 2012. Right. My friend Nico was actually there when it happened. Really? Yeah. When we drove to Columbus for one of the haunt conventions, Nico was with us, and we stopped by. Niagara Falls because it's on the way and it's really cool. And she goes, "Yeah, the last time I was here, there was a guy walking a tightrope across the thing." So yeah, she yeah she was there in 2012 whenever it happened. Yep. Well, it's probably more fun to do that than it is to go on the Maid of the Mist. And imagine just sitting there watching, thinking to yourself, you know, the the second most exciting thing that's going to happen today is he makes it. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to take the steam out of all the people who are building the barrels just upriver. Like, oh, the is out there again. Are they putting up that cable? Ugh. There's got to be, I mean, there's laws against going over the falls in a barrel. There's a law against that, you know. Man, putting a type wire across, I mean, you're basically attempting suicide. <laughs> yeah, I think it takes such a long time to set up that they'll catch that guy. It's hard to catch the barrel people because they, yeah, they go through the woods and they climb in and no, they push them in the water. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like it's not like this was a kamikaze stunt. Yeah. This was like set up. It's like I'm gonna do this. Is that okay with you know both of your governments, Canada and the United States? And at one at one point, like the embassy must be like, whatever, dude. Just tell me what day you're gonna do it so I can like stay home that day. It's, I, I would think that if you live near Niagara Falls, you you probably see this kind of foolishness way, way more often than other people. Like, that's got to be like a local towny thing after a while. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, go to the falls. Now, Thursday, that's the day that Chris Angel's out there. And he's got like his head in a mayonnaise jar and he's, and he's hanging by one hand and it's like a zipline thing. It just stays there for like half day. I don't know. We throw rocks at him. It's cool. But like, I've done it. All right, so moving on to the 16th, June the 16th, 1960. Uh, my favorite horror movie and probably one of my favorite movies ever. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho opens in theaters. That movie scared my mom out of the shower. Oh. And Jaws scared her out of the ocean. Thank God she never watched Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. <laughs> it's a, my mother is the driest woman in the world. I put my mother off chocolate syrup for life. <laughs> yeah, she was. She did. She freaked out. She ran out of the cinema at oh, Psycho, wow. and she wouldn't. Uh, she wouldn't shower with the door closed or the cur- or a shower curtain. She was like, oh, no, no. she was out there. Yeah, this like a common internet kind of question. It's like if you could go back in time and watch a movie in the theater, you know, which movie would it be? And I think the like the four that you had to choose from, like Star Wars, The Exorcist, Psycho, and Psycho was the one I always choose because. One of the things with Psycho, when it first came out in the theaters, is once the movie was starting, they closed the doors and nobody was let. You couldn't enter the movie late. You know, sometimes you're over there with the popcorn, you're like, oh, yeah. One of the gimmicks of the movie was you could not enter late. And, you know, there was also don't give away the ending, you know, kind of a thing. Well, it's funny, like, the way that Hitchcock was sort of mimicking the uh, the style of, oh, what the heck was his name? The producer who used to be, like, He'd make people sign waivers. This film is so terrifying. If you have to sign a waiver that you're not going to sue the cinema if you die of fright. He'd dress up a nurse and have a nurse in the lobby of the, the theater oh, show in yeah, the film. yeah, sounds familiar, yeah. Uh, William Castle, who did The yes. Tingler and some other stuff. That was one of the I, inspirations that Hitchcock had for how Psycho came out. I just watched a movie that was inspired by him called Popcorn. Yeah. Psycho, we just talked about it a couple of weeks ago. I was saying how... You know the the twist ending at the uh, at the end that my friend Nick had no idea, and it was really fun to watch him watch the movie uh, and just get taken for that ride because you know I don't remember watching the movie and not being aware of what was going on. You know, uh, another thing too uh, that just came up was somebody asked on on Facebook. They were like, "What is your favorite horror? Or what is a underrated horror franchise?" And I said the Psycho sequels never get enough attention or love because they're all yeah, fantastic. Agreed. 
Yep. Uh, no argument from me there. Psycho 2 is it came out 22 years after the original, and it's fantastic. Directed yeah. by Anthony Perkins, right? Psycho 2? No, Tony Perkins directed the third one. He directed Psycho 3, which is the worst of the series, which is not saying anything bad about it because it's fantastic. It's just uh, the other three, because Psycho 4 is also amazing. Psycho 4 is a like a flashback movie. It was an HBO movie. It was never in cinemas. And it stars Henry Thomas as young Norman Bates and an actress named Olivia Hussey. Or Hussey. I'm not really familiar what other things she was in, but she played Norma Bates. And yeah, fantastic. Awesome. If you've never seen the Psycho sequels, get on that sh- yeah, they're, they're definitely worth watching. I saw Psycho 2 in the cinema and loved it. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a little more violent than Psycho. There's a couple of scenes I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Holy cow. Right. Yeah. All right, moving on to the 17th. June 17th, 1885, the Statue of Liberty first arrives in pieces and parts in the United States to be assembled in New York City's Liberty Park or Liberty Island. Yeah, it only came with one Allen wrench, which made things really yeah. difficult. It- it did take a long time to put together because all the instructions were in French. That's That was a gift from the French government, yep. and it has been standing on Liberty Island ever since. With the, I don't know if the torch is still lit. The, the torch lit up to, uh, to, to welcome those who are coming to the shores of the United States, the tired and huddled masses yearning to breathe free, as the poem at the base of the statue says, mm-hmm. the poem by Emma Lazarus. It's an icon uh, for New York City, an icon for the United States of America. It has shown up in countless movies, including such great films as Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. I love that movie. We've <clears throat> talked about it. <laughs> yes. Uh, just the, the top part in Spaceballs and then previously in The Planet of the Apes where you blew it up, you blew it up, you bastards. Damn you to hell. So the Statue of Liberty is an iconic piece of America's visual pop culture courtesy of And it's been here since 1885. I didn't realize it was that far back i believe it was a gift from france somebody correct me write me and all that basically as a pat on the back and an attaboy for our abolition of slavery because at the statue of liberty's foot are broken chains ah yeah it's funny uh the the pedestal was it was funded by individual donations from people Mm -hmm. because the president at the time grover cleveland vetoed a fifty thousand dollar uh, expense to build a pedestal so <laughs> it didn't come with a stand he just wanted to like peg it on the ground like star wars action figures <laughs> right exactly oh there's like there's no like hole in the bottom of the foot to stick this thing on oh. <laughs> <laughs> we just have to lean it for now until we build the stand uh there's a prototype of the statue of liberty in france it's like i i don't remember the scale it's like one tenth the size but it's kind of funny. It's in a park in France. Like if you're in, you know, Paris, and you're like, "That was a Statue of Liberty doing here." Yeah, and that's that's the one that they were like, "Oh, what do you think, huh? Imagine something much bigger than this in, uh, let's say, the harbor of uh, New York City." Huh? Yep. Statue of Liberty is made out of copper. She is green because that's what happens to copper when it oxidizes. They haven't done a refurb to it in a long time. The last one that I really remember was when it was covered in scaffolding in like 1984. 85 or 86 when uh, they they went in and reinforced the arm. They took off a bunch of rotted plates and replaced them and dealt with some of the issues of the patina. But it stand up really well. It's, it's beautiful to see. Yep. And then David Lee Roth awkwardly wrote a love song about her. And, and in pure David Lee Roth fashion. It's, I don't want to speculate what he was going to do with her that night, but it's David. Was it called Hot for Statue? No, it's called Yankee song? Rose. Oh. <laughs> All the times I've listened to that song, which is not many in the last 20 years, but... I didn't... Stop it. You didn't know that was about the Statue of Liberty? Oh, Jeff, we have to talk. So, moving along. June the 18th, 1939, the Ellery Queen radio series begins. Ellery Queen is a murder mystery radio show, which my father, that was his favorite genre, murder mysteries. I'm surprised it took me this long to get on board, but that has been like my latest addiction. I've been watching Agatha Christie movies and listening to Agatha Christie like audiobooks. Like I'm, I'm devouring them over the last like three weeks. And I remember my father being a huge fan of Agatha Christie and a big fan of Ellery Queen as well. 
Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine is still in print. It's been in print since the pulp era or no before kidding. even. Yeah. It's oh, wow. one of the few mystery short story markets that's still out there and active. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazingly enough. You know, I've never... Is Ellery Queen the name of a character like Hercule Poirot, like a, a detective character? Or is it the name of the author who wrote a series of stories with a detective or something that's in it? Because, again, it's outside of my genre. I'm not a murder mystery guy. I was completely baffled by Knives Out. And at the end, I was like, no way! Yeah, I... Uh, no, I didn't see any of that. I have... No, as of this recording, I have not seen Knives Out. And I have been told... No spoilers. Uh, yeah, I have been told to definitely pay attention. Uh, no, Ellery Queen is neither the author's name nor a the name of the character. It's a pseudonym created by Frederick Denay and Manfred Brent. It's by it's a uh, it's two guys. It's two authors together, and they came up with the name Ellery Queen for their pseudonym. I like Which Ellery's is, like it's that's a that's a weirdly non gendered like nom de plume, right? So fake name, you don't know Ellery could be you ask like it was it's, if I'm gonna interview Ellery Queen, am I interviewing Mr. Ellery Queen or, or Ms. Ellery Queen? Like, yes. <laughs> what what does that mean? You know? <laughs> I kind of always assumed it was a woman just because Agatha Christie, Ellery Queen, you know. I just always assumed it was a woman, but now I'm finding out it was actually two dudes. Well, they yeah, got something. And, and Ellery isn't a name that you've I've ever heard anywhere else other than as Ellery Queen from Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Right. So I wouldn't even know where to put my pronouns if I was to use them. The two most modern Agatha Christie movies, Murder on the Already Express and Death on the Nile, are both fantastic uh, and, and fantastically cast, too. Uh, the guy they got playing Perot is... Yeah, I, is it, it's not Ewan McGregor, right? It looks like him, but it's not. The guy who looks like Ewan McGregor. Kenneth Brana. Oh, Kenneth Branagh, yeah. Yeah, Kenneth Branagh. He does look like Ewan McGregor, so... You, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't wrong. I've never seen those two guys in the same place, so... Right. All right. And wrapping up the week... June 19th, 1978, Garfield. The comic strip created by Jim Davis first appears as a comic strip in the newspaper. King Features Syndicate. I think it was syndicated all over the country, even in its first run. When I was but a wee lad... Garfield was the funniest comic in the paper. It was groundbreakingly funny. They yeah. must have sold 900 million books of Garfield stuff through the, like Elastic Book Fairs because yep. I bought them all. I had there them all. A, yeah, there was a girl in my class. Her name was Colleen something French was her last name. Colleen something. Anyway, she was the first person that I ever knew to like have like a Garfield book. You know, she brought it into school and I was like, whoa, what's this? What's this crazy business you got there, Colleen? She's like, oh, it's Garfield. It's super funny. And, you know, I read a couple of them like, oh, my God. And I remember bugging my mom to get me a Garfield book. It was so freaking popular. It was everywhere. It was almost like it talked directly to that, the younger age group that was reading it when it was coming out in the papers and, and being compiled into books because it became a competitor for Peanuts. And yeah. I remember friends of mine saying, like, they made him change Odie's ear color so no one mistook him for Snoopy. You know, and I was like, that sucks. <laughs> Screw you, Charles Schultz, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so here's what happened to me, right? Garfield had a couple of TV specials. One of them aired, I'm going to, I don't know the exact date, but it's somewhere in November of 1983. And why do I remember this so well? Is because my grandmother died in November of 1983. The wake was we'll say on a Friday and the Garfield thing aired on the Thursday. This was I was 13 years old. I had never been on the panel of Awake before, but here I was, right? And I watched the Garfield special the night before and Garfield's trying to explain to John that Odie's missing and he's like trying to do it in like interpretive dance and sign language and stuff like that. And he's trying to get his point across. And John just looks at him and goes, hey, you have fleas or something? Garfield grabs him by the face and says, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Like cool hand Luke. And then like lightly slaps him in the face like three times. Goes. And then cracks John. And that got me laughing so bad. And then put me in a position where I'm not supposed to laugh. And I am giggling my stupid little teenage ass off at my grandmother's wake. 
I literally had to keep leaving the room because I couldn't stop laughing. It may very well be the case that it was a Garfield comic that made me laugh to the point where I peed myself as a <laughs> as a tween. So huh? uh, they seem so tame and like, yep, that's a comic now. But that's because I'm an adult, and I, I the part of my brain that really responded to it is just grown or it's turned off or something now. But it was great. It, it had a couple good cartoons that were shared with another creation of uh, Jim Davis, U.S. Acres. Oh, yeah. And a couple of movies that were better left unwatched. I didn't mind the movies. And that's probably because I have a, a, you know, a crush on Jennifer Love Hewitt at the time. And Bill Murray did the voice for Garfield. So, I mean, you kind of can't go too wrong. You know why uh, <laughs> Bill Murray did the voice for Garfield? I, there is a story, isn't there? He thought it was a different director. He thought he was working like with the Coen brothers, but it was different Coen brothers. So he's like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and he's like, what am I doing recording a cat's thing? What am I doing? And then he, he made so much money. He's like, well, I'll do the second one too, I guess. It took two days. <laughs> All right. So moving on to celebrity birthdays. June the 13th, 19... 19- oh, you know what? Uh, doing a little bit of research. Uh, last week, we mentioned that on June 12th, that was the, the Olsen twins' birthday. Uh, yeah, screwed up. Their birthday is actually the 13th. Well, that sucks. Sorry about that, girls. So whose birthday was on the 12th? Uh, Jim Neighbors, Gomer Pyle. Golly! Yep. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Many years before, right? He didn't, like, pop up. Ah, mm-hmm. I'm Gomer Pyle. There's two <laughs> other girls coming out. You know? Shazam, Shazam, Shazam! <laughs> Golly! Uh, he was born in 1930. All right. Uh, but actual, uh, on the 13th, we have Mr. Center Square himself, Paul Lynn, born in 1926. Oh, I remember him. Yep. He was funny. Yeah, very funny. He was always a center square on the Hollywood squares. Always had like a little dirty joke. Famously, they were asking him, you know, why do chefs tenderize their meat? And he, he just said loneliness. Yeah. <laughs> he did a bunch of like variety show type specials where he was the star of the show. Yeah, because he the was Paul so in Halloween special, which is where Kiss got, not Kiss. their... Not their first television appearance, but probably their most famous, yeah. I think that's the first time I ever saw them mm-hmm. was on that. He was also the inspiration for Roger on American Dad. You hear it in his voice, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, if, oh. yeah, if somebody didn't know Paul Lynn, and, but were very familiar with Roger from American Dad, and then stumbled across an old Bewitched episode... They would definitely pick up on it because it's a very, very uh, obvious take on that character. Moving on. All right. June 14th, 1961. Androgynous, super duper famous pop star from the early 1980s. George O'Dowd, known as Boy George, the leader of the criminally under-remembered band. Yeah, now he's criminally remembered for a bunch of stuff later on. <laughs> yes. Um, he's had They've problems. done a couple of... He definitely has has had some. He's overcome them. Like, yeah. It's like everybody else who's you know who manages to sort of find their way into the darkest parts of fame and find their way back out again. Mm-hmm. I always loved like their first couple of records. I thought were fantastic. They were quirky and weird and just different enough from like the British new wave that they were just at the kind of tail end of yeah. and. Just visually strange enough that MTV pretty much had them on heavy rotation for two and a half years. Oh, yeah. Couldn't escape I'll Tumble For You or Karma Chameleon or Do You Want Really Want to Hurt Me. All of those songs are fantastic. Yeah. They are great. Yeah. The whole like gender bending thing that he did too was, you know, in 1982, I think, when they broke. You didn't see it. You didn't, and if you did, it was kind of like, you know, in the back room behind some beats somewhere. It wasn't on national television. And then here's, you know, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, which was in heavy rotation. It was a very popular song. And it it was kind of like, here it is, dude, and it's right in your face, and what are you going to do about it? You know? It normalized a whole bunch of attitudes that conversation that started in the 80s about gender and and sexuality and stuff. Yeah. Because. He was somebody who's like, my mom thought Boy George was awesome. Like, lots of people's moms that were moms of our parents' age, both generations of them, were like, he's such a nice, like Liberace, such a nice boy. Yeah. You know, he has good taste in shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, mom, that's cool. And it it really normalizes the idea that people are different across the board. And, you know, the Venn diagrams all have different circles. It's really great. And 
the the, the service that he did to humanity is pretty huge, I think. And the fact that, you know, it just, you know, came out there very feminine looking and then chose the stage name Boy was such a great middle finger to middle America, I guess. Uh, moving on to the 15th, June the 15th, 1954, somebody who unfortunately was had a huge shadow of his brother in front of him, James Belushi, younger brother of John Belushi, never really was able to completely step out of the shadow of his brother, which is unfortunate because, one, he was super funny, and two, what a great dramatic actor he was, too. He was. He was in good stuff, and... He didn't play like the crazy bananas characters like his brother did. Right. Even though sometimes roles were sort of written to be like that. Uh-huh. But you're right. When he ended up in stuff that had some meat to it, he was great. He was really good. I know um, before the show you mentioned uh, The Principal. Yes. Which was my, my favorite of the dangerous people in taking jobs in schools movies. Yeah. <laughs> of which there were like a dozen of them that year. I also loved him in Filofax. And he had a second banana part in a Tim Allen movie. It was a film called Joe Somebody. Huh. Joe somebody Never where the, he plays like a character that's meant to be like Steven Seagal who's been in a bunch of like surprisingly crappy action movies okay. and runs a dojo in this town where Tim Allen's character lives and after Tim Allen gets beat up in front of his daughter he ends up going to the school and like learning he learns a lot of self-confidence uh-huh. in this dojo with this washed up martial arts action hero but he's really good at being that guy he's really relatable and he's really interesting I like I like Jim Belushi. He's a giant pot farmer now in California. <laughs> All right, moving on. June 16th, 1955, character actress Lori Metcalf, who you probably know mostly from her role as Roseanne's sister on Roseanne. Um, She's been in tons of stuff. I can honestly say I am not overly familiar because I have never been a fan of Roseanne, uh, the show... Or, or the actress, to be honest. But I'm looking at Laurie Metcalf's picture right now, and yes, I know who that is. Yeah, she was in, like, Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah. She was in Runaway Bride. She's been in a whole bunch of movies. She's been in a ton of TV shows. She's done voiceover work and stuff. She's been in all kinds of stuff. She played uh, the character that comes to mind the most is Marcy Dahlgren Frost in Uncle Buck, the weird neighbor that comes over and tries to seduce Buck in, like, one scene of Uncle Buck. And But she's always she's always funny. She was in Desperately Seeking Susan. <laughs> As was, I think, everybody. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And, uh, and she did uh, voiceover work for the Toy Story movies, too. All right, moving on. June 17th, 1898. Uh, rap sensation M.C. Escher. <laughs> <laughs> M.C. Escher is not a rapper. He is an artist. If you are not familiar with his work, you are familiar with his work. He became very popular in the 90s. A lot of his stuff is very mathematical. So you'll have like a bunch of fish and then as the fish start scrolling up into the top of it, they all turn into birds and they all kind of fit together perfectly like uh, like puzzle pieces. Yeah. Yeah. His illustrations are very surreal and abstract. Yeah. Uh, they are. They definitely fall into that similar grouping as like late, later Salvador Dali and right. probably best known for the like the staircase that goes up down sideways all at the same time and he's got people walking in all these different relational yes in relation to this, the different staircases and no matter which way you look at it it makes sense even though none of it does right uh, or the hand holding the sphere and it's a self-portrait it's like his reflection yeah. within the sphere yeah yeah his stuff became super popular in like the 1990s for a while yeah and I'm not sure if it was because of his estate. Like, we can make some money off of this. Right. You know, people like MC Hammer. I bet people are going to like MC Escher, too. (laughs) Uh, I went to see an exhibit of his stuff at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And while I was there, I was told that I can't touch this. (laughs) (laughs) The MC actually stands for Maritz Cornelius. So, yeah, MC is fine. I think the reason why they call them MC is because, like myself, nobody could pronounce it correctly. All right, uh, moving on to the 18th. June 18th, 1952. Speaking of character actors and actresses, is Carol Kane. Probably uh, best known as... Here we go. <laughs> uh, I was going to say probably best remembered or best remembered as Latka Gravis' wife, Simka, on Taxi, but that show is pretty old now. Yeah, I but that's people, I, I think that's probably her most famous role. I think yeah. that's where she's, she's spent the most time in a role. But she really like knocked it out of the park as the ghost of Christmas present in Scrooged. 
where she beat the hell out of uh, Bill Murray. She was also grandma in the Adams Family movies in the 90s. Yes. And the wife of yep. Billy Crystal in the... Oh, yes, in uh, Princess Bride, yes. Yes. So she's yep. been in a ton of stuff. She, apparently she doesn't maybe, have a problem getting under makeup either. Yeah, maybe that's what she's best known from. I think one of my first exposures to her is in the horror movie When a Stranger Calls. I'm so used to her playing like weird characters. For her to play like a straight up like horror movie last girl kind of thing was weird. It's it, it doesn't seem like a good fit for her. It it doesn't seem like a good fit in it and it probably wasn't, which is why there I don't know that there was a When a Stranger Calls back. Maybe there was. I think there was. I think there was. Yeah. I don't think she was in it though. I think she was like, no, I'm gonna go be on taxi. You know, thanks <laughs> thanks for calling. Still active today, still making stuff today. So yep. rock on cow can. And I love her in Transylvania six five thousand. Just have to throw that in there. And wrapping up the birthdays on the 19th, June the 19th, 1954, Kathleen Turner. She's not bad. She's just drawn that way. <laughs> I still think of her as like the last of the great American, not femme fatales, but like ultra cinematic women. Uh-huh. You know, she kind of took that position in the 80s, even though she was doing stuff that was funny, like Romancing the Stone and... And weirdly, and actiony like Vi Warshawski and War of the Roses, she was in stuff like Body Heat, which is still I watch that movie now and I'm like, God, this movie's so sultry. Yeah, it's something. Yeah, and then you know later on with Peggy Sue got married and Serial Mom, Pritzi's Honor, etc., etc., etc. She had a podcast some years back that I used to listen to. Well, as before, oh, really? podcasts were podcasts. Yeah. But it was a it was like an internet radio show that she did a like a th- it was three hours a day this crazy long three hour like political Jeez. radio show it was great she was su- she's super smart uh, and had oh, good yeah. guests on and then it disappeared at some point I think I bought a bumper sticker from her and lest we forget her namesake in the movie of Jack Black's band in High Fidelity Kathleen Turner Overdrive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, one of the, definitely one of the funnier lines of that movie, which turned out to be an actually a really good band within the movie, considering everybody else just thought they were gonna play the worst song ever. Uh, Jeff, it's moments like this that I'm glad I do this show. I picked a hit song from 1983, I believe, by an artist named Matthew Wilder. Now. This is the point in the show where you say, who? Who? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who the hell is Matthew Wilder? Matthew Wilder had a hit song in 1983 called Break My Stride. Oh, yeah. And and I picked this song because I felt over the past couple of weeks, we've picked a lot of songs that we actually like. And I wanted to pick a song that (laughs) sucks. And I don't like this song. This song is stupid. So anyway... Here's the clip and then the the deep dive. I sailed away to China in a little robot to find ya. And you said you had to get your laundry clean. Didn't want no one to hold you. What does that mean? And you said, nothing gonna break my stride. Nobody gonna slow me down. Oh no, I got to keep on moving. Nothing gonna break my stride. this song alright one of the worst things you can do is describe your I had a dream the other night and this is what happened and it never makes any sense and whenever you describe it to somebody you just bore them to death and that's how the song lyrically opens up what a career this guy has had so to speak I mean not much I mean can you name another Matthew Wilder song besides this one yeah there's that one where he, he sings the, the song about the person who has the thing you know right exactly <laughs> i have his greatest hits collection it's very short <laughs> yeah it's called break my stride um, <laughs> it's a cassette single with nothing on the back so i ended up like doing you know a lot of research on the guy watched an interview with him he was a songwriter he had a, a job working as a songwriter for a record company you know he had to write x amount of songs per month he had like quota and that must, that must be the look i don't love my job I'm going to put that out there, right? For those of you who know me, I don't love my job. But can you imagine like where you're just sitting at work and get a guitar in your lap and you're like, oh, shit. God darn it. I 
I've only got seven hit songs this week. I got to get three more or they're going to throw me out of here. And the boss is like, Matthew, <laughs> we need something for Hall and Oates. Oh, shit. Yeah, it just like yeah, he just comes like bounding out of the office like Jay Jonah Jameson, right. like with the chomping on a cigar. Wilder. <laughs> he actually, what he started doing was taking Beatles songs and arranging them backwards and turning those in just to fill his quota. Okay, that's why I recognize his name then from the other song that he did called "Paul Is Dead." <laughs> Paul, it was I was like it just kept repeating that it was really weird. Poor Paul is dead. Well, he, when he got to the song, because he figured out that that's actually Moonlight Sonata played backwards, and it was like, oh, <laughs> they saw me coming. Um, at any rate, uh, this song "Break My Stride." He kept it for himself, and they released it as a single, and it shot right up the charts. Like it, I think it peaked at number five. And then, like, the record company is, like, after him. They're like, hey, well, you're going to put out an album now. So, like, the album is still on the charts while they're finishing the album. And trust me, when you listen to the album, you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't 83 the same year as Pac-Man Fever? Uh, yeah, 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 maybe, yeah. There's a lot to be said for how the music business started to evolve in the early 1980s. And having, right. having a song like this, a single that, like, skyrockets up the chart... And if you go back and listen to the song, you know what it sounds like? Crap. It sounds like a montage song from a romantic comedy. But yes. there's no romantic comedy for it to be in. I listened to the whole album that Break My Stride is on. It's called, like, I Don't Speak the Language or something like that. Um, which is, yeah, the language of common sense music. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> and all of the songs, yeah, they sound like they would fit perfectly into montage scenes in 1980s movies. Uh, then whenever he went to do the follow-up album, he had like a meeting, you know, which almost almost like a mafia meeting, it sounded like. And somebody was like, yeah, I think you should put a couple of my songs on your album. And he was like, I'm, I'm a songwriter, motherfucker. I'm not putting your songs. I'm putting my songs. And he basically got blackballed and, and like his career died on the spot. Yeah, that, that happens. Another thing, too, is... They broke his stride, Bill. They broke it. They, <laughs> yeah, they did. Matthew Wilder is not what you would call visually pleasing, either. He's, yeah, and he's, I, he's, he had he's a, from the Quasimodo slash Christopher Cross school of media stars, yeah. <laughs> On his follow-up album, the, there was a song called Bouncing Off the Walls, which had, as they said on the Wikipedia... An innovative video and it was because it's basically much like the dancing on the ceiling video by worst song ever alumni Lionel Richie but this song and video actually came out like two years prior dude you have to see this video the whole walking around the, the room like break into electric boogaloo notwithstanding you have to see what this man is wearing this man does not have a light in his closet that's that's what's going on well, it's funny that you mentioned that because prior to our recording today, when we were watching that hilarious Solid Gold video of Matthew Wilder and seven people who don't play instruments all pretending to play instruments around him, and yes. we were we were talking about his clothes. But you bring up Lionel Richie, and my God, you know what he looks like? He looks like the Kmart version of like what the Commodores used to wear when they were yes. in like the mid '80s. They were out, they were, they weren't doing the capes and the giant like football style things anymore. They were more conservative, but like there's flaps and there's buckles and there's zippers and places where zippers and buckles and flaps don't go okay in the bouncing off the walls video it looks like okay now picture this it looks like evil knievel and boy george and that psychic with the big yarn looking gray whitish hair i can't think of his name dad something spivey it looks like the three of them got put into a particle collider <laughs> it's like evil knievel's jumpsuit but with like silver sequins it's something else that guy either does not own a mirror, uh, he doesn't have a friend in the world to say, dude, no, no. Uh, this looks like it was filmed by the same guy that uh, Rock Me Tonight video for poor Billy Squire. <laughs> this guy is like the serial killer of music videos, yeah. Later on, though, this guy's like Mr. Magoo, dude. He's like just in the right place at the right time. Later on, he got to produce an album that you may have heard of called Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt. Yeah, 16 million copies later. And then... Pretty sure I got one was, of them. Yeah, he was walking by one of the offices in whatever record company that he works for, and somebody had just gotten fired. And they were like, you, Wilder, get over here. We need you. And then he ended up writing songs and performing vocals 
for the Disney movie Mulan. So this guy is not struggling for food. Let me tell you. Nope. No, it's and he's I you know I mean Mulan wasn't that that's not, not, not that far back. That's maybe what fifteen years ago. So I'm sure he's still still active. Right. Still still out there writing like I know I can I can deconstruct uh Hey Jude. I can put this one backwards. <laughs> you know what this one's probably you know, oh my gosh, this one backwards is three blind mice, holy mackerel. <laughs> <laughs> now here's what's really funny. Here's a Spotify, all right? Let me make an argument for Spotify. People say, Oh, they don't pay the artists enough. Okay? Here's Matthew Wilder with he just put out an album last year. Some of the songs on that album have no listens. Okay, none. That's, <laughs> Even he hasn't listened to them. That's how this guy's doing right now, okay? But because of Break My Stride and A Girl Worth Fighting For from Milan, because of the, he has so many listens, Spotify has a payout of him of over $100,000 a year. That's a lot of money to be sitting around just collecting. That's a good stride not to break. That's a good payday. You know who else has a pretty good payday? Uh, ooh, I Our bet friend, I do. Our friend KC from KC and the Sunshine Band, which was our very popular and always well-received trivia question. I asked you, what does KC from KC and the Sunshine Band, what does KC stand for? It is the last name of the singer and piano player or keyboard player of the band, leader of the band. Casey. Harry Casey is his name. Yep. Harry Wayne Casey. His last name is Casey. And yep. So now he just took the name Casey. Funny story. I was talking about the show with my friend Bob and his wife and they were working at a convention and they were in the like it was in Connecticut and the, like the hotel and the airport were like in the same building kind of a deal. And Casey was in the airport lobby, you know, and he's talking on his cell phone and he's talking super loud. And he's mad about something. And he goes, yeah, everything's great. Everything's great until they realize who I am. They see they see that I'm KC and then boom, $50 bagel. <laughs> <laughs> I would have bought the dude two $50 bagels. <laughs> dude, let me give you a hundred bucks just for that. That was great. <laughs> dude, dude, $50 bagel. It's not like the name KC in the Sunshine Band comes up very often in conversation, but if you're around Bob or his wife, and Casey comes up, one of them will go, boom, $50 bagel. That's so yeah. funny. Can I get an autograph? Well, I'm busy right now. Can I get you later? I got to go polish my my boogie shoes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. And better yet, throw us a ranking over at the Apple Podcast app. A five-star ranking.